Okay, now we have our first message given to us by Mr. Reg Nolan, and it's entitled Heavenly Signs, Blood Moons, and Astrology. On Sunday evening, 27th September 2015, anyone recognize that date? That's the first day of the feast, of, the evening portion of the first day of the Feast of Tabernacles. We were witness to a rare astronomical phenomenon, the total lunar eclipse of a supermoon. Then it happened to fall on the first day of the Feast of the Tabernacles. That did not go unnoticed by this humble observer. Um, honestly, it caught me, though, a bit off guard, for I had not been keeping up with the news, working my late hours, keeping my mind on the feast, etc. So when I witnessed it, at the beginning of it, at least anyway, in the research parking lot, I was struck by the synchronicity of the event with the Feast of Tabernacles, which immediately brought to mind the heavenly signs of the last days mentioned in the book of Revelation. Yet I knew that this was not the end time uh, signs because the great tribulation had not, even, had not yet passed, had in fact it's not even come yet. Uh, our Ancestors in the 16th century or before would have been horrified at such a sight, interpreting it as a sign from God or as a harbinger of change, for such an astronomical event had often been associated with dramatic changes in civilization in the past, such as the bubonic plague, endings of the reigns of rulers. You know, it's, it's a, only a bad omen if you're the ruler in place, not the ruler taking the, taking the place. All right, so... Uh, but it's a uh, dramatic change for the civilization, the ending of reigns of rulers, changes in weather, climate patterns, etc. For the uneducated populace of that time, the sudden darkening of the harvest moon for 72 minutes, that's how long the eclipse lasts, would have been an omen of very bad portent. For they would have uh, imputed with the phenomenon of astrological meaning instead of simply astronomical meaning like something wicked this way comes. But for me, having been educated in physics and astronomy, I just noted the rarity of the lunar eclipse and uh, the harvest moon happening together. Today, I would like to explore what, uh, what such heavenly signs actually are and dispel the idea that they have any mystical power or meaning. Okay, the event of September 27, 2015. On this date, two rare things, a supermoon and a lunar eclipse, happen together. Each one is rare in its own right, but their happening together makes it even more rare, okay? So here's some definitions, okay? Uh, a supermoon is a full moon or a new moon um, at the closest point to Earth, also called as perigee. Uh, Okay, here on the back side, we see the supermoon on the, on the left and the micromoon on the right. A perigee, by the way, the, Earth's or, the moon's orbit around the Earth is not perfectly circular. Instead, it is elliptical. So if you, I hope you all know what ellipse is. It's a squashed circle so that there's one part of it that's closer to the Earth and one part that's farther away. When it is closest to the Earth, we call that the perigee. When it is farthest away, we call it the apogee. Okay, those are the two technical terms for it. Uh, the, the term supermoon is actually not an official astronomical term. In fact, it was first coined by an astrologer named Richard Noel back in 1979. He defined it as a new moon or a full moon that occurs when uh, the moon is within 90% of its closest approach to the Earth's orbit. Okay, so that's a supermoon. 
supermoon on the left. Now, the supermoon appears to be uh, about 7% larger than the normal or the average size of the moon, and it's actually about 14% larger than the smallest, the micro-moon, when the moon has had its apogee. Okay, now time, timeanddate.com uses the following definition. A supermoon is a full moon or a new moon that occurs when the moon is less than 360,000 kilometers or 223,694 miles away from the center of the earth. A micromoon, which is a full moon or a new moon that takes place when the moon is farther than 400,000 kilometers, or 248,588 miles from the Earth. Okay, so that's what an apogee is. Now, what happened, as I said, is this is both a supermoon and a lunar eclipse happening together. The, the lunar eclipse is actually a term called a syzygy. I know that sounds like a strange name. Next, right? And is a syzygy. A syzygy... Is a, the technical term for the whole thing together is a perigee syzygy of the Earth-Moon-Sun system. In astronomy, the term syzygy refers to the straight-line configuration of these three celestial bodies. Like that. Okay? The Sun's uh, uh, here, the Earth is in between, and the Moon uh, is behind the Earth. So you see that the Sun casts a shadow, uh, or actually the Earth casts a shadow on the Moon. The darkest part of the shadow is called the umbra, and the part where it's only partially in shadow from the light coming from the other side is the penumbra. When the moon is in the full umbra, that's when we, a blood moon occurs. Okay, a total lunar eclipse is sometimes uh, uh, called a blood moon because of the reddish hue cast on the moon uh, when the moon is in the Earth's shadow. When the moon is in the Earth's umbra, light from the sun gets scattered as it passes through the Earth's atmosphere. This is a process known as Rayleigh scattering. What's happening here is that the particles in the atmosphere um, disperse or, or interfere with the light rays that they come across. And the longer, the, the ones that are toward the uh, blue end of the, of the violent end of the spectrum are scattered much more severely than the ones that are toward the red end. So the, when the, violent, the light rays from the violent end get scattered, then the light rays from the red end pass through and the moon takes on a reddish hue. So if you ever wonder why it's just because the red light is the only one that can penetrate through. And as it goes through the atmosphere, it gets bent a little bit so that it casts a red light on the moon. Hence, the red light passes through the Earth's atmosphere, um, gets bent or refracted around the Earth to make the moon appear in a reddish light. Whatever particular hue of red that it is depends upon the pollutants that are in the atmosphere. Okay, blood moon may also refer to the total lunar eclipse that occurred during a lunar tetrad, of which there are uh, the one on the uh, 27th of September was the fourth in the 2014-2015 Tetrad. Okay. All right. There that one is. Okay. So this is the picture of... Can we go back and see the, the image of the blood moon itself? That's what a blood moon would look like. When the... It's in total lunar eclipse. The supermoon in total lunar eclipse with the light bending around the earth and making the, uh, the uh, moon appear red. Okay, now next slide. Okay, now this is the 2014-2015 tetrad. A tetrad is a sequence of four 
total lunar eclipses with no partial ones in between. That doesn't happen all that often, but it's not completely rare either. So if that happens, those moons are also called blood moons. Those moons are also called blood moons. The others having occurred on these dates, April 15, 2014, October 8, 2014, and April 4, uh, 2015. Now, there are some radical Pentecostal ministers, like John Hagee and Mark Blitz in particular, who have argued that the occurrence of the four blood moons co coinciding with the Levitical high days, the, the, all of these particular blood moons happen to fall on Levitical high days, Passover, Sukkot, um, Passover, um, uh, there was a solar, partial solar, the, the one on Nisan 1 is a, um, a new moon, and then the one on Rosh Hashanah uh, was a, a partial solar eclipse. But notice there are no other um, uh, lunar eclipses that occur in the period. So these are four consecutive total lunar eclipses that occur, and they happen to have fallen on high holy days. Some, some people have given that a mystical significance uh, when it's just a coincidence of uh, time. Uh, they, they have argued that the occurrence of four blood moons coinciding with the Levitical high holy days are a heavenly sign that the end of the world is upon us, deriving the interpretation, they say, from the book of Joel or from Peter's citation of it on the day of Pentecost in 31 AD. Go to Joel 2, uh, verses 28 to 31. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. And also upon the servants and upon the handmaids in those days, I will pour out my spirit. And I will show wonders in the heavens and in the earth, blood and fire and pillars of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness. That's a total solar eclipse. And the moon into blood. That's a blood moon before the great and terrible day of the Lord to come. All right, clearly what Hagee and company don't understand is the time sequence of the book of Revelation. For this event is to schedule to occur just before the great and terrible day of the Lord, but after the, um, day, the days of tribulation, the great tribulation. So, just before the Great Tribulation, which occurs after the two and a half year period known as the Great Tribulation, which we haven't yet even entered into, because it is preceded by a great and terrible earthquake, greater than any other that has ever come before. There have been earthquakes as big as uh, 8.4, as I remember. I suspect that such an earthquake, I did a, a sermon a few uh, years back on earthquakes, as a matter of fact, and I suggest that this great earthquake might be uh, an earthquake, might actually be an earthquake cascade, possibly around the Pacific Rim, from uh, Southern Asia uh, uh, around the Pacific Rim and across Southern Asia. That would be, they're all linked together, so that if one earthquake happened, it might produce a chain of earthquakes all the way around. So an earthquake cascade, perhaps. Uh, so to see these blood moons as an omen of the end of the world to come is at best uh, a bit premature, to say the least. At worst, it is a deliberate attempt at deception designed to scare the hell out of his followers and scare mo money into the coffers. Okay? Because of all the uh, conditions have to be just right in order to create them, such 
events such as blood moons, supermoons, micromoons, solar lunar eclipse are called astronomical phenomena. Not because they're anything uh, that has mystical significance, it's just that the conditions have to be exactly right for that thing to occur. The so the term phenomenon refers only to their rarity, does not imbue them with any kind of mystical properties. Rather, though rare, they are predictable and explainable as natural phenomena. All right, what is the purpose for the heavenly signs? God makes it very clear what his purpose for heavenly signs are. Back in Genesis, okay, okay back in Genesis 1.14, God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to divide between the day and the night. Let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and for years. All right, so clearly he placed the heavenly bodies in the sky and made them to obey the physical laws of the universe so that it would serve as, keyword, temporal markers. Temporal markers. The sun to mark the beginning and ending of a day at sunset. Actually, it marks one rotation of the earth around its axis. New moons to mark the beginning of a month or one full cycle, one full rotation of the moon around the earth. Full moons to mark Passover and the Feast of Tabernacles. They always occur on the full moons. Further, such, such events are, such as solar and lunar eclipses are periodic and predictable. They could easily be temporal markers in God's master timeline so that we were smart enough, we might even figure out well, where we are on this timeline. In addition, some rare astronomical events are also predictable, but with a much longer period, such as Halley's Comet. Halley's Comet is an elliptical orbit of a comet that goes way out and then comes back in, but it's actually relatively short as comets go. It recurs every 76 years. Um, annual meteor showers, such as the Perseids or the Leonids, all of these are heavenly signs. Now, the, the, when the meteor showers occur, they look like stars falling from heaven. So that's the image that's, that John records in, in Revelation as well. Go to Matthew 24, verse 29. And immediately after the tribulation, notice after the tribulation of those days, then shall the sun be darkened and the moon not give her light and the stars shall fall from heaven and the power of the earth shall be shaken. Okay, so the sun shall be darkened is a solar eclipse. Moon not give her light is a lunar eclipse. Stars fall from heaven, that's a meteor shower. I don't know what the powers of heaven being shaken are, but that, that's... That's the fourth element of it. However, these are temporal markers only, and we must not imbue them with any kind of mystical significance or magical power, for to do so would be tantamount to astrology, imbuing those heavenly bodies with power, and will cast us back into an age of ignorance and fear and what I call stupid stition. Okay, go to Jeremiah 10, verse 2. We usually use this one for the uh, Christmas tree and things, but it also applies to other things. Look at what this one, Jeremiah 10, 2 says. Thus says the Lord, learn not the ways of the heathen. Be not dismayed at the signs of the heaven, for the heathen are dismayed by them. Okay, here's what an astrological website said about the recent eclipse. The total lunar eclipse on September the 27th in the house of Aries in September would involve destruction to cattle, exile, imprisonment, or murder of a ruler or prominent person in the country. Discontent among the people, infighting, movement of armies, problems and losses of clocks to the insects, scarcity of veg vegetables and fruits. People may suffer from free fever and other diseases in regions affected by the eclipse. 
Aries being a movable sign, the effects of this eclipse would be brief. You notice how negative that wall was? Everything in there was negative. There was not a single positive thing that happened, that whole thing. And notice how general they were as well. Okay, that, those kinds of things are happening every, uh, somewhere uh, at any point in time. So again, the, the, anyway, ast astrology asserts a causal relationship between the positions of the heavenly bodies and the events that occur on earth. But I ask you, what possible connection could there be between the moon moving into the shadow of the earth and an event happening? Be no more uh, there would be more of a causal relationship if I were to move into Ron's shadow than there would be for the earth moon moving into the earth's shadow. That, that could be more dangerous, right? <laughs> okay, how... Uh, um, let's see. But there's what possible connection could there be between the moon moving the earth's shadow for a mere 72 minutes and the events that I just mentioned? None. That's nonsense. But note how the elements of the prediction always evoke fear. God condemns astrology and, expo and exposes those who practice it for the fools that they are. Astrology is a superstition which has the semblance of science with its multiplicity of aspect calculation, but has none of the substance, for it's founded on false premises and functions as a power tool for those who practice it to wield their influence over those too ignorant to know better, even if that person should happen to be a king or the president of the United States, as in the Reagans. Astrology is extremely seductive with its promise of knowledge of the future and opportune times for action, but it would also condemn us to a fatalistic worldview and give us little or no free choice. God condemns astrologers. God condemns astrologer and sorcerer. Technically, the word sorcerer comes from pharmacon, which means a uh, druggist or drug dealer or the like, but astrologers are, so, are associated with with the same sorts of people. Astrologers are technically uh, mathematicians, who calculate all these different measures uh, of the suns and the moons and the stars along the way. Okay, from the beginning, God wanted his people to be undefiled with the corruption, uh, with the corruption of heart and mind inherent in astrology and sent strong prohibitions against it through Moses. Go to Deuteronomy 18, 9 through 12. When you are come into the land which the Lord has given you, you shall not learn to do after the abominations of those nations. There shall not be found among you any that makes a son or daughter to pass through the fire or uses the divination, divination or an observer of time, an observer of times, or an enchanter or a witch, or a charmer or a consulter with familiar spirits or a wizard or a necromancer. For all of the necromancers, a person who reads the future from dead the entrails of dead things. Okay. Uh, for all of these do, all these things are an abomination to the Lord because these abominations, uh, the Lord will drive them out from before you. At the end of the Old Testament, he affirms his same stance. He affirms that he means business. M look at Malachi 3, 5. And I will come near to you in judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers and against the adulterers and against the fault, the um, the false swearers against those who extort from the higher's wages and turning away the widow and the orphan and the alien and not fearing me, says Jehovah. In between, 
In between Genesis and Malachi, he ridicules the astrologers and the saucers and the wise men to expose them for the fools that they are, political fools in most cases. Consider God's rebuke of the Lady of the Chaldeans, a prophetic image of the fate of the Roman chart. Listen for the mocking tone in the words of Isaiah. Isaiah 47, verses 5 to 13. Sit silent and go into darkness, O daughter of the Chaldeans, for you shall no more be called the mistress of the kingdoms. I was angry with my people. I have polluted my inheritance and given them into your hand. You showed them no mercy. You have, uh, have very heavily laid your yoke on the aged. And, I, and you said, I shall be mistress forever. So you did not lay these things to your heart, nor remember the end of it. Now hear then, now then hear this, O pleasure seeker who lives carelessly, who says in her heart, I am and none else is. I shall, sit, I shall not sit as a widow, nor shall I know the loss of children. But these two things shall come to you in a moment, in one day, the loss of children and widowhood. They shall come upon you in the fullness of your multitude for your sorceries and for the great power of your enchantments. For you have trusted in your wickedness. You have said, no one sees me. Your wisdom and your knowledge, it hath perverted you. And you have said in your heart, I am, and there is none else. But evil shall come upon you, and you shall not know, know its origin. And mischief shall fall on you, and you shall not be able to put it off. And desolation shall come upon you suddenly, and you shall not know. Stand now with your spells, and with your multitude of your sorceries, in which you have buried, uh, wearied yourself since the time of youth. Perhaps you will be able to profit. Perhaps you may bring terror. You are exhausted by your many plans. Now let the astrologers stand, stand up and save you, the stargazers, making known what is coming to you on the new moon. Do you hear the mocking tone in that language? Okay. Particularly in Babylon, birthplace of Western astrology, God mocks the astrologers and the wise men by giving King Nebuchadnezzar dreams that only Daniel could interpret. None of the astrologers could do so. Daniel 1, verses 19 to 20. And the king communed with them, and among them was found none like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Uh, for uh, therefore stood they before the king and in all matters of wisdom and understanding the king inquired of them he found them ten times better than all the magicians and astrologers that were in his realm that's, all, that's a slap in the face if there weren't one okay the king answered and said to Daniel uh, this is Daniel 2 uh, verses 26 to 28 the king answered and said to Daniel whose name was Belteshazzar Art thou able to make known unto me the dream that I have seen and the interpretation thereof? And Daniel answered in the presence of the king and said, The secret which the king has demanded cannot be seen. Cannot the wise men, the astrologers, the magicians, and the soothsayers show unto the king? But there is a God in heaven that reveals secrets and makes known to the king Nebuchadnezzar what shall be in the latter days. Okay. All right. Um, Daniel 4, verses, verse 7. Then came the magicians, the astrologers, the Chaldeans, the soothsayers, and I told the dream before them, but they did not make known to me the interpretation thereof. This is Nebuchadnezzar speaking. Okay, all right. Okay, I got to wait. Gotcha. All right, so all, what we're seeing here again, God effectively making fun of the astrologers, 
giving them problems that they cannot solve, dreams of the kings they cannot solve as well. Daniel 5, 6 through 8. Then the king's countenance was changed, and his thoughts troubled him, so that uh, the joints of... This is uh, Belshazzar. Uh, yeah, okay. Then the king's countenance were changed, and his thoughts troubled him, so as the joints of his loins were loose, and his knees smoked together. His knees are knocking together. Uh, the king cried aloud to, uh, and to bring in the astrologers, the Chaldeans, and the soothsayers. And the king spoke and uh, said to the wise men of Babylon, Whoever shall read this writing and show me the interpretation, this is the many, many tickle ephorium, um, shall be clothed with scarlet and have a chain of gold about his neck, and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Then the kings, then came in all the king's wise men, but they could not read the writing nor make known to the king the interpretation thereof. So you'd think that these astrologers, these wise men who have this mystical connection to the universe could be able to interpret this for the king, wouldn't you? Nah, couldn't have it. We also see warnings against astrology in the New Testament, but it's often so subtle that the modern reader may miss the reference. Go to Galatians. Oops, Matthew, you may be right. No. Galatians, ah, oh, there it is. Okay, I'm, I'm, I'm just first time using a tablet entirely for my uh, message, so it's a bit risky, shall we say. Galatians 4, verses, uh, verses 8 through 10. How be it then, that when you knew not God, you did service unto them which were by nature not God's, by now, after that we have, but now, after that we have known God, or rather are known of God, how turn you again to the weak and beggarly elements, whereunto you desire to again to be in bondage? You observe days and months and times and years. Here you may think that Paul is warning, uh, just a general warning against return to idolatry and worship in pagan deities. However, his use of observed times in verse 10 and his use of elements in verse 9 strongly suggests a more direct reference to astrology because the observing of times is exactly what astrologers do. And each and uh, the use of the elements here, there are four classical elements in ancient Greece, earth, air, fire, and water, and each one of those was associated with a particular sun sign in astrology. So God's con condemnation here may be a bit subtle. It might be missed by many of the modern readers. God's condemnation of astrology is so strong precisely because, though, it robs us of our free choice. In Revelation 21... We see the ultimate fate of the such practitioners at the end of days. Uh, Revelation 21, verses 6 through 8. And he said unto me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To him who thirsts, I will give of the fountains of uh, water of life freely. He who overcomes will inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But the fearful, and the unbelieving, and the abominable, and the murderers, and the whoremongers, and the sorcerers, and the idolaters, and all liars will have their part in the lake, of, uh, in the lake burning with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. So the astrologers, the sorcerers, the, the idolaters, all of those people thrown into the lake of fire and burn up forever. Not burning forever, but burn up forever. There's a difference there. The actual passage about the heavenly signs in Revelation actually occurs in Revelation 6. So let's go back and look at that. Re Revelation 6, verses 12 to 17. 
Okay. Uh, then I beheld when he had opened the sixth seal, and lo, there was a great earthquake. There's your great earthquake. And the sun became black as sackcloth of hair, and the moon became as blood, and the stars of heaven fell unto the earth, even as a fig tree shattered, a fig tree cast her untimely figs when she's shaken of a mighty wind. And the heavens departed as a scroll when it just rolled together. And every mountain and an island were moved out of its place. That's the effect of an earthquake cascade. And the kings of the earth and the great men and the rich men and the chief captains and the mighty men and every bondman and every free man hid themselves in the dens and the rocks of the mountain. And they said unto the rocks of the mountain, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him that sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great and day, great day of those wrath is come, and who shall be able to understand to stand? Notice the, the timing. Timing is important. God's timing is perfect. This is a this is positioned very significantly between the two and a half years of the great tribulation and the great and terrible day of the Lord. In the story flow of Revelation, at this point, we have witnessed the opening of the first four seals, which released the four horsemen of the apocalypse. We've heard the cries of the martyrdom of the saints described in the fifth seal. Here at the beginning of the sixth seal, we see the heavenly sign, temporal markers only that separate the great tribulation from the great and terrible day of the Lord that is soon to, be, uh, to come as soon as the 144,000 are sealed. What follows then is the opening of the seventh seal that unleashes God's wrath upon the earth, including the seven trumpets, the seven vials, the three woes, all before the actual appearance of Christ as king of kings. So, what's the conclusion of this? Don't be dismayed by the signs of the heaven. When we see the signs in the heaven, let us note them for the temporal markers that they are. And be with, but with one eye, one ever watchful eye, fixed upon the plan of God and his timetable. Let us be awed by the complexity of the universe and uh, God that created them that would allow such phenomena to occur. But let us not attribute any mystical significance or magical power to these events, lest we fall into the trap of astrology and condemn to the lake of fire.